Chapter Four, Part Two of Annie Besant by Annie Besant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. I may pass very quickly over the next two years. In August 1870, a little sister was born to my son, and the recovery was slow and tedious, for my general health had been failing for some time. The boy was a bright, healthy little fellow, but the girl was delicate from birth, suffering from her mother's unhappiness and born somewhat prematurely in consequence of a shock. When, in the spring of 1871, the two children caught the whooping cough, my Mabel's delicacy made the ordeal well-nigh fatal to her. She was very young for so trying a disease, and after a while bronchitis set in, and was followed by congestion of the lungs. For weeks she lay in hourly peril of death. We arranged a screen round the fire like a tent, and kept it full of steam to ease the panting breath. And there I sat, day and night, all through those weary weeks, the tortured baby on my knees. I loved my little ones passionately, for their clinging love soothed the aching at my heart, and their baby eyes could not critically scan the unhappiness that grew deeper month by month. And that steam-filled tent became my world, and there, alone, I fought with death for my child. The doctor said that recovery was impossible, and that in one of the paroxysms of coughing she must die. The most distressing thing was that at last even a drop or two of milk would bring on the terrible convulsive choking, and it seemed cruel to add to the pain of the apparently dying child. At length, one morning the doctor said she could not last through the day. I had sent for him hurriedly, for the body had suddenly swollen up as a result of the perforation of one of the pleurae, and the consequent escape of air into the cavity of the chest. While he was there, one of the fits of coughing came on, and it seemed as though it must be the last. He took a small bottle of chloroform out of his pocket, and, putting a drop on a handkerchief, held it near the child's face, till the drug soothed the convulsive struggle. "'It can't do any harm at this stage,' he said." and it checks the suffering. He went away, saying that he feared he would never see the child alive again. One of the kindest friends I had in my married life was that same doctor, Mr. Lauriston Winterbottom, and he was as good as he was clever, and like so many of his noble profession, he had the merits of discretion and silence. He never breathed a word as to my unhappiness, until in 1878 he came to town to give evidence as to cruelty, which, had the deed of separation not been held as condemnation, would have secured me a divorce a mensa et thoro. The child, however, recovered, and her recovery was due, I think, to that chance thought of Mr. Winterbottom's about the chloroform, for I used it whenever the first sign of a fit of coughing appeared, and so warded off the convulsive attack and the profound exhaustion that followed in which a mere flicker of breath at the top of the throat was the only sign of life, and sometimes even that disappeared, and I thought her gone. For years the child remained ailing and delicate, requiring the tenderest care, but those weeks of anguish left a deeper trace on mother than on child. Once she was out of danger, I collapsed physically and lay in bed for a week unmoving, and then rose to face a struggle which lasted for three years and two months, and nearly cost me my life, the struggle which transformed me from a Christian into an atheist. The agony of the struggle was in the first nineteen months, a time to be looked back upon with shrinking, as it was a hell to live through at the time. 
for no one who has not felt it knows the fearful anguish inflicted by doubt on the earnestly religious soul. There is in life no other pain so horrible, so keen in its torture, so crushing in its weight. It seems to shipwreck everything, to destroy the one steady gleam of happiness on the other side that no earthly storm could obscure, to make all life gloomy with a horror of despair, a darkness that verily may be felt. Nothing but an imperious intellectual and moral necessity can drive into doubt a religious mind, for it is as though an earthquake shook the foundations of the soul, and the very being quivers and sways under the shock. No life in the empty sky, no gleam in the blackness of the night, no voice to break the deadly silence, no hand outstretched to save. Empty-brained triflers who have never tried to think, who take their creed as they take their fashions, speak of atheism as the outcome of foul life and vicious desires. In their shallow heartlessness and shallower thought they cannot even dimly imagine the anguish of entering the mere prenumbra of the eclipse of faith much less the horror of that great darkness in which the orphaned soul cries out into the infinite emptiness, Is it a devil that has made the world? Is the echo, Children, ye have no father, true? Is all blind chance, or is all the clash of unconscious forces, or are we the sentient toys of an almighty power that sports with our agony, whose peals of awful mockery of laughter ring back answer to the wailings of our despair? How true are the noble words of Mrs. Hamilton King! For some may follow truth from dawn to dark, as a child follows by its mother's hand, knowing no fear, rejoicing all the way. And unto some her face is as a star, set through an avenue of thorns and fires, and waving branches black without a leaf. And still it draws them, though the feet must bleed, though garments must be rent and eyes be scorched. And if the valley of the shadow of death be passed, and to the level road they come, still with their faces to the polar star, it is not with the same looks, the same limbs, but halt and maimed, and of infirmity. And for the rest of the way they have to go, it is not day but night, and oftentimes a night of clouds wherein the stars are lost. Ay, but never lost is the star of truth to which the face is set, and while that shines all lesser lights may go. It was the long months of suffering through which I had been passing, with the seemingly purposeless torturing of my little one as a climax, that struck the first stunning blow at my belief in God as a merciful father of men. I had been visiting the poor a good deal, and had marked the patient suffering of their lives. My idolized mother had been defrauded by a lawyer she had trusted, and was plunged into debt by his non-payment of the sums that should have passed through his hands to others. My own bright life had been enshrouded by pain, and rendered to me degraded by an intolerable sense of bondage. And here was my helpless, sinless babe tortured for weeks, and left frail and suffering. The smooth brightness of my previous life made all the disillusionment more startling, and the sudden plunge into conditions so new and so unfavorable dazed and stunned me. My religious past became the worst enemy of the suffering present. All my personal belief in Christ, all my intense faith in His constant direction of affairs, 
all my habit of continual prayer and realization of his presence. All were against me now. The very height of my trust was the measure of the shock when the trust gave way. To me he was no abstract idea, but a living reality, and all my heart rose up against this person in whom I believed, and whose individual finger I saw in my baby's agony, my own misery, the breaking of my mother's proud heart under a load of debt, and all the bitter suffering of the poor. The presence of pain and evil in a world made by a good God, the pain falling on the innocent, as on my seven-months-old babe, the pain begun here reaching on into eternity unhealed, a sorrow-laden world, a lurid, hopeless hell. All these, while I still believed, drove me desperate, and instead of like the devils believing and trembling, I believed and hated. All the hitherto dormant and unsuspected strength of my nature rose up in rebellion. I did not yet dream of denial, but I would no longer kneel. As the first stirrings of this hot rebellion moved in my heart, I met a clergyman of a very noble type, who did much to help me by his ready and wise sympathy. Mr. Besant brought him to see me during the crisis of the child's illness. He said little, but on the following day I received from him the following note. April 21st, 1871 My dear Mrs. Besant, I am painfully conscious that I gave you but little help in your trouble yesterday. It is needless to say that it was not from want of sympathy. Perhaps it would be nearer the truth to say that it was from excess of sympathy. I shrink intensely from meddling with the sorrow of any one whom I feel to be of a sensitive nature. The heart hath its own bitterness, and the stranger meddleth not therewith. It is to me a positively fearful thought that I might awaken such a reflection as, And common was the commonplace, and vacant chaff well meant for grain. Conventional consolations, conventional verses out of the Bible, and conventional prayers are, it seems to me, an intolerable aggravation of suffering. And so I acted on a principle that I mentioned to your husband that there is no power so great as that of one human faith looking upon another human faith. The promises of God, the love of Christ for little children, and all that has been given to us of hope and comfort are as deeply planted in your heart as in mine, and I did not care to quote them. But when I talked face to face with one who is in sore need of them, my faith in them suddenly becomes so vast and heart-stirring that I think I must help most by talking naturally and letting the faith find its own way from soul to soul. Indeed, I could not find words for it if I tried. And yet I am compelled, as a messenger of the glad tidings of God, to solemnly assure you that all is well. We have no key to the mystery of pain, excepting the cross of Christ. But there is another and a deeper solution in the hands of our Father, and it will be ours when we can understand it. There is, in the place to which we travel, some blessed explanation of your baby's pain and your grief, which will fill with light the darkest heart. Now you must believe without having seen. That is true faith. You must reach a hand through time to catch the far-off interest of tears. That you may have strength so to do is part of your share in the prayers of yours very faithfully, W.D. A noble letter, but the storm was beating too fiercely to be stilled, 
and one night in that summer of 1871 stands out clearly before me. Mr. Besant was away, and there had been a fierce quarrel before he left. I was outraged, desperate, with no door of escape from a life that, losing its hope in God, had not yet learned to live for hope for man. No door of escape? The thought came like a flash. There is one, and before me there swung open, with lure of peace and of safety, the gateway into silence and security, the gateway of the tomb. I was standing by the drawing-room window, staring hopelessly at the evening sky. With the thought came the remembrance that the means was at hand, the chloroform that had soothed my baby's pain, and that I had locked away upstairs. I ran up to my room, took out the bottle, and carried it downstairs, standing again at the window in the summer twilight, glad that the struggle was over and peace at hand. I uncorked the bottle and was raising it to my lips when, as though the words were spoken softly and clearly, I heard, O coward, coward, who used to dream of martyrdom and cannot bear a few short years of pain. A rush of shame swept over me, and I flung the bottle far away among the shrubs in the garden at my feet, and for a moment I felt strong as for a struggle, and then fell fainting on the floor. Only once again in all the strifes of my career did the thought of suicide recur, and then it was but for a moment, to be put aside as unworthy a strong soul. My new friend, Mr. D., proved a very real help. The endless torture of hell, the vicarious sacrifice of Christ, the trustworthiness of revelation, doubts on all these hitherto accepted doctrines grew and heaped themselves on my bewildered soul. My questionings were neither shirked nor discouraged by Mr. D. He was not horrified, nor was he sanctimoniously rebukeful, but met them all with a wide comprehension inexpressibly soothing to one writhing in the first agonies of doubt. He left Cheltenham in the early autumn of 1871, but the following extracts from a letter written in November will show the kind of net in which I was struggling. I had been reading Emily Campbell's work On the Atonement, you forget one great principle, that God is impassive, cannot suffer. Christ, qua God, did not suffer, but as Son of Man and in His humanity. Still, it may be correctly stated that He felt to sin and sinners as God eternally feels, i.e. abhorrence of sin and love of the sinner. But to infer from that that the Father in His Godhead feels the sufferings which Christ experienced solely in humanity and because incarnate, is, I think, wrong. 2. I felt strongly inclined to blow you up for the last part of your letter. You assume, I think quite gratuitously, that God condemns the major part of his children to objectless future suffering. You say that if he does not, he places a book in their hands which threatens what he does not mean to inflict. But how utterly this seems to me opposed to the gospel of Christ. All Christ's references to eternal punishment may be resolved into references to the valley of Hinnom, by way of imagery, with the exception of the dives parable, where is distinctly inferred a moral amendment beyond the grave. I speak of the unselfish desire of dives to save his brothers. The more I see of the controversy, the more baseless does the eternal punishment theory appear. It seems then to me that instead of feeling aggrieved and shaken, you ought to feel encouraged and thankful that God is so much better than you were taught to believe him. You will have discovered by this time in Maurice's What is Revelation, 
I suppose you have the sequel, too, that God's truth is our truth, and His love is our love, only more perfect and full. There is no position more utterly defeated in modern philosophy and theology than Dean Mansell's attempt to show that God's love, justice, etc., are different in kind from ours. Mill and Maurice, from totally alien points of view, have shown up the preposterous nature of the notion. 3. A good deal of what you have thought is, I fancy, based on a strange forgetfulness of your former experience. If you have known Christ, whom to know is eternal life, and that you have known him, I am certain, can you really say that a few intellectual difficulties, nay, a few moral difficulties, if you will, are able at once to obliterate the testimony of that higher state of being? Why, the keynote of all my theology is that Christ is lovable because, and just because, he is the perfection of all that I know to be noble and generous, and loving, and tender, and true. If an angel from heaven brought me a gospel which contained doctrines that would not stand the test of such perfect lovableness, doctrines hard, or cruel, or unjust, I should reject him and his trumpery gospel with scorn, knowing that neither could be Christ's. No Christ and judge religions by him. Don't judge him by religions, and then complain because they find yourself looking at him through a blood-colored glass. I am saturating myself with Maurice, who is the antidote given by God to this age against all dreary doublings and temptings of the devil to despair. Many a one in this age of controversy over all things once held sacred has found peace and new light on this line of thought, and has succeeded in thus reconciling theological doctrines with the demands of the conscience for love and justice in a world made by a just and loving God. I could not do so. The awakening to what the world was, to the facts of human misery, to the ruthless tramp of nature and of events over the human heart, making no difference between innocent and guilty. The shock had been too great for the equilibrium to be restored by arguments that appealed to the emotions and left the intellect unconvinced. Months of this long, drawn-out mental anguish wrought their natural effects on physical health, and at last I broke down completely, and lay for weeks helpless and prostrate, enraging in an unceasing head pain, unable to sleep, unable to bear the light, lying like a log on the bed, not unconscious but indifferent to everything, consciousness centered, as it were, in the ceaseless pain. The doctor tried every form of relief, but entrenched in its citadel the pain defied his puny efforts. He covered my head with ice, he gave me opium, which only drove me mad, he did all that skill and kindness could do, but all in vain. Finally, the pain wore itself out, and the moment he dared to do so, he tried mental diversion. He brought me books on anatomy, on science, and persuaded me to study them, and out of his busy life would steal an hour to explain to me knotty points on physiology. He saw that if I were to be brought back to reasonable life, it could only be by diverting thought from the channels in which the current had been running to a dangerous extent. I have often felt that I owed life and sanity to that good man who felt for the helpless, bewildered child-woman, beaten down by the cyclone of doubt and misery. So it will easily be understood that my religious wretchedness only increased the unhappiness of home life, for how absurd it was that any reasonable human being should be so tossed with anguish over intellectual and moral difficulties on religious matters, 
and should make herself ill over these unsubstantial troubles. Surely it was a woman's business to attend to her husband's comforts and to see after her children, and not to break her heart over misery here and hell hereafter, and distract her brain with questions that had puzzled the greatest thinkers and still remained unsolved. And, truly, women or men who get themselves concerned about the universe at large would do well not to plunge hastily into marriage, for they do not run smoothly in the double harness of that honorable estate. Sturm und Drang should be faced alone, and the soul should go out alone into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil, and not bring his majesty and all his imps into the placid circle of the home. Unhappy they who go into marriage with the glamour of youth upon them, and the destiny of conflict imprinted on their nature, for they make misery for their partner in marriage as well as for themselves. And if that partner, strong in traditional authority and conventional habits, seeks to break in the turbulent and storm-tossed creature, well, it comes to a mere trial of strength and endurance, whether that driven creature will fall panting and crushed, or whether it will turn in its despair, assert its divine right to intellectual liberty, rend its fetters in pieces, and discovering its own strength in its extremity, speak at all risks its no when bidden to live a lie. When that physical crisis was over, I decided on my line of action. I resolved to take Christianity as had been taught in the churches, and carefully and thoroughly examine its dogmas one by one, so that I should never again say, I believe, where I had not proved, and that, however diminished my area of belief, what was left of it might at least be firm under my feet. I found that four chief problems were pressing for solution, and to these I addressed myself. How many are today the souls facing just these problems, in disputing every inch of their old ground of faith with the steadily advancing waves of historical and scientific criticism? Alas, for the many canutes, as the waves wash over their feet. These problems were, one, the eternity of punishment after death, two, the meaning of goodness and love as applied to a God who had made this world with all its sin and misery, three, the nature of the atonement of Christ and the justice of God in accepting a vicarious suffering from Christ and a vicarious righteousness from the sinner, four, the meaning of inspiration as applied to the Bible and the reconciliation of the perfections of the author with the blunders and immoralities of the work. It will be seen that the deeper problems of religion, the deity of Christ, the existence of God, the immortality of the soul, were not yet brought into question, and looking back I cannot but see how orderly was the progression of thought, how steady the growth, after that first terrible earthquake and the first wild swirl of agony. The points that I set myself to study were those which would naturally be first faced by anyone whose first rebellion against the dogmas of the churches was a rebellion of the moral nature, rather than of the intellectual, a protest of the conscience rather than of the brain. It was not a desire for moral license which gave me the impulse that finally landed me in atheism. It was the sense of outraged justice and insulted right. I was a wife and mother, blameless in moral life, with a deep sense of duty and a proud self-respect. It was while I was this that doubt struck me, and while I was in the guarded circle of the home, with no dream of outside work or outside liberty, that I lost all faith in Christianity. 
my education, my mother's example, my inner timidity and self-distrust, all fenced me in from temptations from without. It was the uprising of an outraged conscience that made me a rebel against the churches and finally an unbeliever in God. And I place this on record because the progress of materialism will never be checked by diatribes against unbelievers, as though they became unbelievers from desire for vice and for license to do evil. What religion has to face in the controversies of today is not the unbelief of the sty, but the unbelief of the educated conscience and of the soaring intellect, and unless it can arm itself with a loftier ethic and a grander philosophy than its opponent, it will lose its hold over the purest and the strongest of the younger generation. End of chapter 4, part 2